Parshat Baha'alotcha. And I actually want to uh, look, start looking at, at the beginning of chapter 9 today, which is on page 954. Emily, I was saying, we're gonna, I'm going to stop doing this class. Were you here for that piece? Until, because I have a writing project I'm working on. So, so this will be our last week for now. Um, let's say the bracha. Baruch ata Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam asher kishanu b'mitzvotav v'tivanu la'asok b'divrei Torah. Amen. So Behalotcha has a lot going on. It's a long parsha, and um, it begins. It's called Behalotcha because. Laha'alot means to raise up, and uh, it starts with telling Aaron that he has to raise up the lights on the menorah, and that's where it gets its name from. And then in chapter 9, uh, well, let's just read. So at the bottom of 954, the Eternal One spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai on the first new moon of the second year following the Exodus from the land of Egypt. When's that? The first of Nisan. The first of Nisan. So they've been out for just under a year now. Let the Israelite people offer the Passover sacrifice at its set time. So it's two weeks until Passover. So it's that... Shabbat HaGadol? Shabbat HaChodesh. Shabbat HaChodesh. Well, no, this is on Rosh Chodesh. Because he's speaking on the new moon. Um, the, <laughs> the special parsha. That's right. <laughs> and you shall o- you shall offer it on the fourteenth day of this month at twilight at its set time. You shall offer it in accordance with all its rules and rites. So this is the first Passover commemoration, right? right? Last year, they were slaughtering the lamb, putting it over the blood the blood over their doorpost. And so this is Mamish, the first Passover, which it's, I think is cool. going to the supermarket looking for the Passover stuff. That's right. <laughs> go to the supermarket. Make sure it has... they got two weeks to go. So Moses instructed the Israelites to offer the Passover sacrifice. And they sacrificed, they offered the Passover sacrifice in the first month, on the 14th day of the month, at twilight, in the wilderness of Sinai. Just as the Eternal had commanded Moses... So the Israelites did. That's very dramatic That's now that I'm reading it. Yeah. They're a year out of slavery and they're marking the first anniversary of having their li- of not of having their firstborn saved and then getting out by the skin of their teeth. That's pretty cool to think about. Um, it reminds me, um, oh, I don't know, Jerry Gilman was around, so he's dead quite a number of years now. This is maybe 15 years ago. An Haggadah, a, a rabbi, an elderly rabbi who'd been a chaplain in World War II. I have this information, the name's in my office, but I don't have it. Had passed away, and his kids were looking through his stuff. And they found this Haggadah that had been created for the Seder in 1946 in Frankfurt that he led for both American soldiers, Jewish soldiers, and for Jews who were in the DP camp nearby. 
And the Haggadah had been created by the people in the, who had survived the concentration camps. It's called the so, and it was just a, it was just a paperback sort of mm, handset. But there it was, and so they took it upon themselves to create a, a book called the Survivors Haggadah, where they transferred the images. There were there were woodcuts and text, um, and um, made it into a beautiful volume. Have you seen it? No. I have it in my, in, hi Bruce, I have it in my office, I'll sh I, it's really amazing because Jerry Gilman showed it to me. So the reason I'm telling you this is that this was the first Pesach after liberation. And so when they said, Avadim Hayinu, we were slaves, and there's a woodcut of barbed wire and guards, and it's like, it's very powerful. Because they, this was their raw experience. It's really an incredible book. I, I'll, I, sh I should go get it. I'll show it to you at the end of class. Um, and uh, the rest of that story is that then a gentleman stood up whose name is also escaping me, but who had a weekend house up here, and an older guy, and he says, "I was at that seder." Mm. Again, his name will come back to me. He was a beautiful, lovely man. And he described being at that Seder. And he was in the DP camp in 1946. Isn't that amazing? That was one of the most amazing things that's ever happened to me. Um, it was a Friday night service. And I'm talking about, it's near Yom HaShoah, so I'm talking about this Haggadah. Hi, Gail. We're over here today. How did you get... Here? Jerry Gilman. Do you remember Jerry? Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, so Jerry had read about it. He'd purchased a copy. Oh, his was a copy that. Oh, this is a beautiful volume okay. that was created with reproductions okay. and and a descriptive text. So that's how come I knew the whole story about it, because the text described what this Haggadah had been created for, right. and where and how it was found in the rabbi's belongings after he passed away and. So that was, um, so that's what this made me think of, how it must have felt to be at your first Passover after that experience. It's profound to think about, isn't it? Um, okay, so they do it. They have their first Passover. It makes me want to do a whole dramatization of what that must have been like. Verse 6, but there were some people who were impure by reason of a corpse and could not offer the Passover sacrifice on that day. Remember, if you've come in contact with the dead in ancient Israel, 955, sorry. Oh, thank you. Thank you. In ancient Israel, if you've come in contact with, uh, with a corpse, you can't partake of, of the holy sacrifices. You have to wait seven days and go through the mikvah and or whatever, not even seven. You, but there wasn't time. And appearing that same day before Moses and Aaron, those people said to them, impure though we are by reason of a corpse, why must we be debarred from presenting the eternal's offering at its set time with the rest of the Israelites? And Moses said to them, stand by. Imdu, wait here. 
and let me hear what instructions the Eternal gives about you. I like that too. They wanted to participate, but the rules were that they couldn't because they didn't come in contact with the dead. And the Eternal One spoke to Moses saying, speak to the Israelites, the Israelite people, and say, saying, when any of you or of your posterity who are defiled by a corpse or on a long journey would offer a Passover sacrifice to the Eternal, they shall offer it in the second month on the 14th day of the month at twilight. And they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. And they shall not leave over any of it until morning. They shall not break a bone of it. They shall, in other words, we've heard these instructions before, they shall offer it in strict accord with the law of the Passover sacrifice. But, okay, so that's called Pesach Sheni. It's in the book, Second Passover. If for whatever reason you weren't able to celebrate Pesach on the full moon of Nisan, there is a, there is a um, what's it called? Second chance. Uh, there, there's, it's in the books that on the following full moon you can do Pesach then, which I think is cool. And it speaks to the centrality, the, the utter centrality of Passover in the reaffirmation of being part of the Jewish project, right? Everyone has to partake. You can't not do it. Otherwise, look what happens. If a person who is pure and not on a journey refrains from offering the Passover sacrifice, that person shall be cut off from kin. For the eternal's offering was not presented at its set time, and that person shall bear the guilt. Nichreta that soul will be cut off from her people. Because nefesh is a feminine word. That soul will be cut off from her people. And that's why in Judaism, this is so central that that's why the wicked child in the four sons in the Haggadah says, what does this have to do with you? Uh, uh, with me, right. And because they say, I am not part of you, that is the height of, um, uh, you shall set his teeth on it, and said, because of what the Lord did for me when we were liberated from Egypt. Me and not him, because had he been there, he wouldn't have been liberated, because he cut himself off from the community. It's so deep. Um, and yes, yeah. That makes me feel, I had forgotten this, but we don't observe it to the second month. But my kids and I have, is the one holiday we do together, and that we do, we do a real Seder, is Passover, but we do it on the 23rd day of Passover. Whenever you can get together. Whenever you can get everybody together, because there are complicated schedules involved in the school schedules. And, grandparents and so on. This is so really and significant. And, and, and right. And it makes me feel like, oh, it's really okay that we're doing it this I'm so way. glad we're talking about this because as, again, as a 21st century Jew in our crazy society where our family can't necessarily get there on Pesach, then yes, we will call, I'm going to remember that and call it Pesach Sheni. That if you can't do it on the day, the Torah says you can do it when you can all get together. 
that's exactly what we're talking about. And it's happening more and more now where people say, well, we'll do it on the weekend. Because they, now, on the one hand, it's... I'm you not know. sure it's saying that you can do no. it when you all get together. I'm reading no, it it's saying not. you can do it on this set day rather than that set and day. And I'm spinning it to say, <laughs> I'm spinning it to say a contemporary interpretation of this. When people are flying in and they have jobs and they aren't observant Jews and they're not, they don't have it in their schedule to, to have the day off and that what they have to do is have a Seder or their souls will be cut off from the people. Which is to say that that does, if you, it, if you don't celebrate Passover, you're not part of the project. Um, it's, Karen, it's all right to be progressive. <laughs> yeah, we're talking Torah here. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing a very liberal interpretation. I'm, I'm reading the text here. I, I, I want to add, we also do it, you know, my, my grandchildren are between the ages of five and nine currently. And for the last several years now, three years anyway, we have acted out the Exodus. And we just we just act it out, and, and you know. And would you like a book? One of the kids talks about Pharaoh. We have Pharaoh. We have the army chasing him. We, we had this time. We had we had frog. We had masks that we wore for the plagues. We have a red sea that Gwen gave me that was the heart. Oh, uh, I mean, what's it made of? And it's 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 very it's wonderful, and the kids really get it, you know. So it's it's a really it's a very non traditional. Say it. I mean, we do, but that's again why yeah. pedagogically the rabbis put the four children in there because it says for the one who the simple child you do it this way for the young child meaning and for the so you're just you're just following the instructions yeah. that's great that's great so it's like an early expression of flexibility this is remarkably flexible, isn't it? Yes. Because the imperative wasn't that it be on that day. The imperative was that you not be cut off from the central reaffirmation of who we are. Otherwise, if you don't, you're not part of it. You're not, and, and also, we've talked about this in the past. The Passover Seder is a reenactment so that it's not a remembering. It's actually, it's a, and this is what I learned from my uh, uh, Christian minister friend, it's a sacrament, which in the Christian meaning means that when you're doing it, it's actually happening again. And so you are participating in our liberation at that point. You're not just telling it or remembering it. And I see that's why we eat the, the foods. I feel like we're ingesting and it's embodied. embodied, that's the word. We're embodying this story. We're there. Right. Yeah. Are there, um, so, um, in the more um, orthodox end of things, are there people who I believe so. Who celebrate on, Pesach on the letter of the law, meaning Pesach Sheni? Yes, I believe it's, yeah. uh, it's on the books. If you look on the Jewish calendar, you'll, I think you'll yeah. see Pesach Sheni in the calendar. So, say somebody's in the hospital or in intensive care, or, yeah, yeah. Then what? Then, as we were just reading, you, didn't, you missed it. Then, it says in the Torah, on the next new moon, if you are unable on the new moon of Passover, full moon of Passover to celebrate, then on the following full moon, 
you make a Passover, even though it's a full moon late. Do you have to get the whole family together? I don't know. Um, I think if we if we Google Pesach Sheni, we'll learn more about it. I didn't actually. I didn't. Yeah, you got to do it again. Again. <laughs> That's funny. But by then it's half price. <laughs> That's right. New everything. It's all on. It's all in this clearance shelf. But it's about a house. The household. It's, yeah. it's, Right. Well, what to be speaking what about, as much about the household and the household right. but as now, much as the individual. You hear like some grandchildren have to do if they, you know, at school at a, at a Chabad Passover away from home. You know, they're not with the family. I mean, right. so you hope that they will, you know, celebrate it. Not celebrate it. Will, you know. Be part of it somewhere else. They don't have That's to right. Be with you, you no, know. they don't have to be with Not you. Everybody has to be. No, they don't have to be with you. This, again, again. Like Jewish guilt. This, you, know, you didn't come home. Okay. This is written for a, a, a people who live yeah. and work in their villages, and they make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Uh, it's so you're either on a journey, or you here, or you've been, or you're in a state of ritual impurity because you had to handle a course. So that prevents you from doing it. But we're in a very different condition. Ever since we were in diaspora, we're in a very different condition. And so that's why the Passover Seder says, let all who are hungry come and eat. Let all who are in need come and celebrate the Passover. Because you just have to be with with, with the Yidden. You have to be with the people. And uh, yes, so it expands beyond your clan here. Um, that's so interesting how much Passover has changed in terms in that way since then. Let's go on, shall we? Thank you. That was, a, that was interesting to me. Verse 15 on page 956. Oh, no, no, verse 14. This is very important. And when a stranger who resides with you would offer a Passover sacrifice to the Eternal, it must be offered in accordance with the rules and rites of the Passover sacrifice. There shall be one law for you, whether stranger or citizen alike. This is a very, very used line in Jewish law. It, it, this, this idea that there should be one law for you, stranger and citizen alike, becomes a line of, that says it's not just about that uh, the stranger, meaning the, um, the resident, Alien, the person who's in your community but not part of the Jewish people, that's what the stranger means, um, uh, and lives with you and wants to partake, then they follow the same rules. Uh, what it comes to mean in Jewish law, this line, is a, another protection for the non-citizen. And so this line gets quoted in Jewish law often so that the non-citizen has the same legal protection as the citizen, right? And that goes along with the do not oppress a stranger, do not... So even though this line is specific to Passover, it gets taken out of context in Jewish, in, in, a, lot of, in a larger Jewish context to say one law, citizen or non-citizen. Which is cool, yeah. I don't know if I've said this before, but I was reading a while ago that given the 
the archaeological evidence that when the Israelites came into the land, they did not exterminate or eliminate right. the people who were there before. That a very large part of the Israelite population, of the population of Israel, um, in the first period, first temple, maybe later, was Canaanite. That's right. So that there were resident aliens everywhere. That's right. Um, and most of them did not hold land because the way the land was, in fact, taken over. That's the understanding. Mm. So they really needed protection. They were largely craftspeople and artisans and whatever else they were. But, but they needed the protection. And it's an incredible law. Mm -hmm. It's an incredible statement. Yeah. And, and what we're saying is it's not about a few isolated That's right. people. It was really a big chunk of the population. The stranger is someone who's not part of your tribe. Yeah. And there were plenty of them. Yeah, mm -hmm. And even though celebrating the Passover in this context was your reenactment and complete reaffirmation of who you are as someone who was a slave in Egypt and is now free and who therefore gives thanks to God and is part of this, that the stranger who wants to do it with you can do it with you. Now this actually, I need to look into this deeper because elsewhere it says no one who is uncircumcised mm -hmm. can partake of the Passover. So you'll forgive me, but I didn't do my prep today. And so... Uh, I have to um, uh, I have to look that up because that seems like a blatant contradiction to me, um, and uh, I can't answer it. There's also the, the idea that there was this mixed multitude that was with them at this point. At, at, That's right. When the children of Israel left, there were a lot of folks known as the Erev Rav, meaning the mixed multitude. Erev Rav is like Arov is to mix. So a, a big bunch of like uh, the the I mixed multitude must be the King James, Probably. but it has the right alliteration, you know, erev rav. But the the best word I've heard, the best translation I've read for erev rav is riffraff, because <laughs> has it sounds just like it and has that quality of like. Uh, well, that's a little condescending. Oh, that's true. Hoi polloi, flotsam and jetsam. <laughs> It's worse. <laughs> <laughs> but they're the people who came yeah. out who said, we're getting out of here with these people because look what just happened with their... So they should have a more elevated word. Mm -hmm. So Erev Rav. So let's stick with mixed multitude. What, so, so if they were um, riffraff, whatever, they weren't clans. That's right. They, they were organized. They right. Were they were free atoms. They, they, they were coming along for the ride there's, and wanting... There were strangers residing... With strangers you. residing with you. That's right. right. Yeah. Yeah. Just to say, in the study Bible, it, does not, it won't help, really. Oh. But I just want to... Uh, you just um, second one. You said, observance of Passover is mandatory both for Israelites and resident aliens, though, according to Exodus... 1248, yeah. only circumcised resident it's aliens it, yeah. may partake. It's, oh, it's, 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 it's a footnote here. Uh -huh. It's okay. in the footnote here. Yeah, but if you're a circumcised resident alien, you're, you've entered the covenant. Right, right. So, you know, we can harmonize them, but, but it's still not clear to me. Right. Wasn't circumcision practiced by other peoples? Yes, but circumcision is, is from, clearly from Abraham, the, you know, the sign of the covenant. So... You know, that's why even a, a male who is already circumcised, who converts, has to have a drop of blood drawn from their uh, penis in order to fulfill the covenant of blood. So, 
there's still a ritual even if you're circumcised already. So once you partake in that ritual, you've joined the people. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't know. We're, we're reaching across millennia here, and I'm just not sure. Of course, the women's commentary um, focuses on who might also be excluded would be the women who've just given birth, that they'd be you know, That's right. This would be a, a, a good-sized population, perhaps. So having a, having a Pesach Sheni, you needed it. Because so many people might be in a state where of ritual impurity where you can't uh, partake of a holy sacrifice. And the, having given birth to a child being in that category. Right. Is, is ritual. Is, but impurity is not the right word. I, 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 you know, we've come up with better words before. Um, An menstruation. So. Yeah. If you've, if, if you've touched blood or death. Mm -hmm. is what it means. And that's how they looked at it. It's sort of God's realm, not our realm. Yeah, yeah. Okay, now let's see what happens next. On the day that the tabernacle was set up, when was that? That was at the end of Exodus. We've had like uh, a lot of rules in, in, since then. Um, at the end, on the day that the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered the tabernacle the tent of the pact. And in the evening it rested over the tabernacle in the likeness of fire until morning. It was always so. The cloud covered it, appearing as fire by night. I love this section. Let me just read it all and then let's talk about it. And whenever the cloud lifted from the tent, the Israelites would set out accordingly. And at the spot where the cloud settled, there the Israelites would make camp. At a command of the Eternal, the Israelites broke camp, and at a command of the Eternal, they made camp. They remained encamped as long as the cloud stayed over the tabernacle. When the cloud lingered over the tabernacle many days, the Israelites observed the Eternal's mandate and did not journey on. At such time as the cloud rested over the tabernacle for but a few days, they remained encamped at a command of the Eternal and broke camp at a command of the Eternal. And at such times as the cloud stayed from evening until morning, they broke camp as soon as the cloud lifted in the morning, day or night. Whenever the cloud lifted, they would break camp. Whether it was two days or a month or a year, however long the cloud lingered over the tabernacle, the Israelites remained encamped and did not set out. Only when it lifted did they break camp. On a sign from the Eternal they made camp, and on a sign from the Eternal they broke camp. They observed the Eternal's mandate at the Eternal's bidding through Moses. That again has such an incantatory quality. It's Al pi Adonai yechanu, ve'al pi Adonai yisa'u, et mishmeret Adonai shamaru, al pi Adonai b'yad Moshe. It's just that beautiful biblical language that I only thought of as boring when I was younger. And now I understand that they're, they, they're not writing a newspaper article. 
right? Um, okay, so I'm fascinated by this cloud that appears as a pillar of fire by night and as a cloud during the day and represents the presence of God, of yod heh vav and uh, the, the children of Israel must follow it, its lead. So what do you think about that? I would think that they would travel when the cloud was there because it protects them from the sun. That's right. The image of the cloud, but it's, and it's fire by night, is an image of protection during the day and protection at night. Light and warmth at night and shade in the day. So that's the symbol of God's protection of them. Yeah. The cloud rests over the tabernacle when they're not moving. It's always there. But it doesn't. Oh, okay. The cloud is always there. Okay. And when they camp, and if it stays there for two days, and then lifts, then you may break camp after two days. If it stays there for a year, then you stay with the cloud no matter what. That's that's what's going on. And it's a fire by night and cloud. Yes, at the I, day. I've always found that contradictory. So. How so? It sounds as if the cloud disappears. No, never disappears. It's also leading with, you follow the cloud to know where to go. It's right, and the cloud also is where you, you follow it. Um, and this is a story, you know, don't get literal on me, but yeah, you follow the cloud. So I've thought about this one a lot. I mean, first of all, the fact that the, the presence of God is described in, as something that you can see but has no uh, substance, right? And that you can, um, it's visible, but it's not material. Do do you know what I'm saying? Um, uh, And so it's a great image of the divine presence as something that you can sense, but you can't apprehend. How do you catch a cloud or catch the fire and keep it. You can't. You can't do it. And um, it's like, uh, so that's one thing that I like about this image. It's an image of protection, but it's also an image of incorporeality, of something there, but something you can't grasp or contain. I also like the image a lot because the, the children of Israel have left the building the garrison cities of Egypt and are now in the wilderness and are being asked to follow a cloud. And there's something about the test of the spiritual journey where you leave everything you know. Abraham has to leave everything he knows and leave. And the children of Israel have to leave the, the, the secure boundaries of what they know, which is also their enslavement and walk around following a cloud. It's like hitching your wagon to a star. Isn't that the, where's that come from? Just, I'm not sure. I don't know. It's this idea that you're, that you're putting your destiny way beyond your own sense of where you should be going or how you're gonna get there. And I really love all of that metaphor of this section. Um, so what you're doing is you're living a life of profound faith and also 
a willingness to live in the present and pack up and go because it's time. Um, whatever that, whatever, you know, now, now internalize the fire at night and the cloud and day and think about your journey and what that completely unquantifiable ir and irrational thing that happens to us occasionally in our lives that tells us we must go. Go to where? Go to what? You know what I, you know what I mean? Um, for me, that would be the internal kind of calling that we feel sometimes that just goes against all of the structures we've built up in our life. And it means dismantling them sometimes. That also is the, the metaphor of the journey for me of faith, of following something that, that um, uh, offers no, no structured, no retirement plan. You know, it's not that. That's what I'm thinking about. Yeah. Well, isn't it also um, saying that uh, it's sort of like a test? Like it is you, a test. You don't know why I'm doing this. That's right. You just have to do it. When you see this, you do this, and he, God is represented by this cloud, and you know, don't think about why you have to get up and go. This is what you do. And That's right. It's a, and if you, you know, day after day, and it's almost like sometimes I'll do it for two days. Sometimes I'll make you stay for a, a long time, and and you just have to take it on faith that uh, this is what I want you to do, and you have agreed to do that. That's right. It's sort of like... But you've agreed for you're it. crazy. <laughs> you know? You're crazy, but you've agreed for it also in exchange for a relationship right. and protection and right. care. Right. As long as uh, you... And uh, it's the opposite of idol worship, right? Idols are static, like the walls of the, the fortress. They're static. They're solid, they're sure, and they are not leading you anywhere, right? They're, and if that, that's one life choice, and that's not what is, that's not what God is taking us, that's not what this story is taking us on. Um, the manna is another test, because if you remember, the manna also requires living for the day and trusting that tomorrow come. If you hoard the manna, it rots overnight. If you take too much, there's none left over in the morning. It's like you can't, you, there's no, your only security, it's a rat, it's like, I've called the wilderness journey spiritual boot camp, mm -hmm. right? You want to trust? Well, you're going to practice trusting, friends, you know? And that's how the stories are, they're, they're being prepared to enter the promised land by practicing that radical trust. Um, that's, that's uh, I agree with you. Um, there's, yeah, it's, there's and, and the way it gets described in Deuteronomy is, God says, remember these 40 years that I led you through the wilderness and tested you to find out what was in your hearts, whether you would fulfill the mitzvot, the commandments or not. So yeah, it's radical. Yeah. Um, I was also thinking about the physicality of it because it would be very different if the wilderness they were in 
or say the Northeast United States, where they could follow a river, oh. where they would feel they were somehow moving along. But you know, but the desert that they're in has no landmarks. I mean, it, it all looks more or less the same. Oh, but not to the people who live there. But but it doesn't. But it doesn't feel too because they spend forty years in a pretty small space. Right. I mean, at this point, they haven't uh, they haven't been commanded to uh, wander yet. Um, right. Right. But that's but, coming but, soon. But, yeah. but the experience for them, the sense of needing trust, is that I've been out there, you know, where I can't find the next cairn. Yes, the next cairn, no the next trail. pile of stones. There's like, no trail. It's just where the hell? Because I am out here in the middle of nowhere. Right. And they don't have a cairn, they have a cloud. Yes. You know? But it's really different. It, it feels that way to me. Just the landscape is, is much, I don't mean it's featureless, but it doesn't have a clear, right. it doesn't have a trajectory. Yeah, it's yeah. not like following, right. you know, we're going up and down a mountain. I mean, it's different. Right, and the, yeah. the natives know where the water holes are, and they're far apart. And they're not native to this. That's true. <laughs> That's true. They've been they've been in they've been in the in the Nile Delta. That's right. And now they're out there. Exactly. Whoa. So, so it really out, is. Out there is different. It's two thousand years ago. It's not the same the way it is now. Yeah, right. There's no nothing. Well, we know it could be completely different. We know what the landscape's like because we can travel it. But there were no. There, it really is the wilderness. It's un. It's the unmarked territory. Unmarked. That's the word. Mm -hmm. Mm, thank you. I got reprimanded the last time, so I take the battery. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Everybody has their time. We all have our time. Good, good. So uh, that's, that's the cloud. You know the song that came to mind is, uh, uh, Away out here they got a name for rain and snow and fire. I don't know, the wind they call Mariah came to my mind. <laughs> I don't know why they get away. <laughs> okay, chap yeah. no. chapter 10. Let's see what happens next. Uh, so far, we've heard about the second Passover, so they're getting ready for that, because all of this is preparatory for when they actually break camp shortly. They're still at Mount Sinai. Chapter 10. The Eternal One spoke to Moses, saying, Have two silver trumpets made. Make them of hammered work. I'm on 957 at the bottom. Uh, they shall serve you to summon the community uh, and to set the divisions in motion. When both are blown in long blasts, the whole company of fighters shall assemble before you at the entrance of the tent of meeting. It doesn't say fighters. Let's see. Uh, Okay, so our translator thinks this is referring specifically to the, uh, uh, the fighting men. Um, but I don't think so. It says the divisions. Yeah, yeah, but the, the divisions is in Hebrew, machanot, uh, the camps. So they've all, they're all in camps, so it's not 100% not clear. Uh, when both are blown in long blasts, the whole company of fighters shall assemble before you at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And if only one is blown, the chieftains, heads of Israel's contingents, shall assemble before you. But when you sound short blasts, true ah. Remember the, so the long blast is 
uh, and the short blasts are called trua, just like we do today. That's in verse 5. Sound short blasts, the divisions encamped on the east shall move forward. And when you sound short blasts a second time, those encamped on the south shall move forward. Thus short blasts shall be blown for setting them in motion. While to convoke military bodies of the congregation, you shall blow long blasts, not short ones. The trumpet shall be blown by Aaron's sons, the priests. They shall be for you an institution for all time throughout the ages. When you are at war in your land against an aggressor who attacks you, you shall... Oh, so this is why they're assuming it was all about uh, military. You shall sound short, short blasts on the trumpet, that you may be remembered before the eternal your God and be delivered from your enemies. And on your joyous occasions, your fixed festivals and new moon days, you shall sound the trumpets over your burnt offerings and your sacrifices of well-being. They shall be a reminder of you before your God. I, the Eternal, am your God. So these are not shofars, actually, though the shofar is mentioned elsewhere. These are silver, silver trumpets. Uh, does it say anything about that down here? Uh, so where did they get the silver from? Oh, they had silver and gold. They, they, they stripped the Egyptians. They, yeah. they carried it out of Egypt. They left everything behind. No, they took as much as they could with them. Right, they took the meant armed. Um, interesting. Uh, okay, so those are called the chatotrot. It's a musical instrument that we hear about in the Psalms. Um, and but it's not just military; it's also joyous occasions, uh, fixed festivals, and new moon days. Okay. I find it interesting because I, th- I see it a fair lot. Now here it says, you sound short, trainers, place on trumpet, remember, so you shall be remembered before the eternal your God and delivered from your enemies. Mm-hmm. Uh, God will know whether you blow the horn or not that you've been attacked. You must do something in order to show that you're acknowledging that this is where you're saying... Uh, your being saving comes from. Right. Mm-hmm. It can't be that, oh, well, he knows what's happening. Why is he doing something? <laughs> you have to buy a ticket. We, uh, yeah, and, uh, before you can play. God hears the cry. Excuse God me. hears the cry. Yeah. That, that's, that harks back to, uh, to um But again, we're Egypt. involved. Right, it's a, it's a relationship. Uh, you must make the cry. Right. Thank you. Thank you. That's right. Good. Okay, verse 11. In the second year, on the 20th day of the second month, the cloud lifted from the tabernacle of the pact. It's happening. So we started this, this chapter, the, our reading started in, that, in the second, first new moon of the second year. And so now they've done first Pesach. Looks like they've done second Passover because that's on the 14th. Oh, this is happening at the end of Pesach Sheni. Right. Now that uh, everybody's done it, it's time. <laughs> oh, that's cool. I never thought. Of, I never thought about. I always wondered why that was. And the Israelites said, "The cloud lifted." Na'alech Anan, 
from the Mishkan, and the children of Israel set out on their journeys from the wilderness of Sinai. And the cloud came to rest in the wilderness of Paran. They have left the vicinity of Mount Sinai now. Isn't that interesting? Now, today, the whole peninsula is called the Sinai Peninsula. But on the map, you'll see that there are sub-areas in it that, with these biblical names, persist. Um, they finally on their way. That's cool. And when the march was to begin at the Eternal's command through Moses, the first standard to set out troop by troop was a division of Judah. And in command of its troop was Nachshon, the son of Aminadab. Of course. Yes. That's why Nachshon is the, in the Midrash of stepping into the water. And I don't think I need to read all of this. So this is, Nachshon is on the east, and then they go first, and then the tabernacle is taken apart, and the Levites carry it, and then, Ru, and then Reuben and Shimon and... When you're in your 80s, you're going to look back at this and say, you know, when I was in my 60s, I couldn't read all this. Let's read it all. <laughs> in command of the tribal troop of Issachar, Netanel, you're right, Karen. That's so funny. And in command of the tribe of Zulon, Eliav ben Chelon. I know a lovely guy named Eliav. Then the tabernacle would be taken apart, and the Gershonites and the Merarites who carried the tabernacle would set out. And then the next standard to set out was the division of Reuben, with Elitzur, son of Shdeur. And in command of Shimon, Shlumiel, son of Tzurishadai. And God, Eliasaf, son of Deuel. And then the Kohatites who carried the sacred objects would set out. And by the time they arrived, the tabernacle would be set up again. Oh, okay, I'm glad we're reading this. So, so they're going like three tribes, and then the, 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 the Gershonites and the Merarites, and then three more tribes and the Kohatites, so that when they get to the, where they're going to camp, the Gershonites and the Merarites have set up the whole tabernacle, and the sacred objects just can get put in there. Very good planning. And then the next was Ephraim with Elishama of Amichud and of Amichud. And then Manasseh with Gamaliel ben Pedatsur. And then Benjamin Abidan ben Gidoni. And then at the rear guard, the standard of Dan would set out with Achiezer son of Amishadai and Asher Pagiel ben Ochran. And, and then Naphtali Achira ben Enan. Such was the order of the march of the Israelites as they marched troop by troop. Not the picture we have of wandering. No, <laughs> no. It's very organized. It's very organized and it's important yeah. because um, they, the, the physical organization is representative of the society that they're organizing in the wilderness to follow the Torah. So they're not, really, they're not really straggling along anymore. They've received, they straggled out of Egypt, but now they've received the Torah and have set themselves up around the Mishkan in the center where the cloud rests. So they are organized around following God. Yeah. Now, an interesting thing happens. Moses says to Chovav, son of Ruel the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law, one of the strangest things in the Torah because Moses' father-in-law, we thought his name was Yitro, 
Jethro. So as with some other traditions in the Torah, there seem to be two storytelling traditions. One, his father-in-law's name is Chovav, and the other, his father-in-law's name is Yitro. Um, and Chorev... Maybe he was a bigamist. And so he had two names? Oh, you mean he had two families and he had two identities? One over here and one over there. There you go. Be that as it may... He's a traveling guy. <laughs> be that as it may, it seems like this was not a problem to the editors of the Torah. They did not seem to be hung up on the fact that Moses' father-in-law has one name here and another name there. But later people are very hung up about it as they want the Torah to all cohere in a way that it appears that the original redactors weren't that concerned with. But the note says, uh, 29, says yeah. that Hoab or Reuel... The phrase Moses' father-in-law could refer to either Hoab or Reuel. Yeah. The account in Exodus 2.18.21 names Ruel as the father-in-law of Moses, while that in Exodus 3.1 and chapter 18 calls the father-in-law Jethro. So he has three traditions. Uh, Jewish tradition generally held that Chovav was another name for Jethro, just as Chorav was taken to be another name for Sinai. Critics distinguish a Chovav tradition, blah, 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 versus a Jethro tradition. According to the Midrash, where the problem is discussed in detail, Moses' father-in-law had seven names. For instance, in Judges 1.16, the name is given as Keni. So, he had seven names. Okay. And Moses had seven wives. And seven fathers-in-law. Okay, so, but anyway, here's what Moses says. He loves his father-in-law. Remember, his father-in-law is the one who's taught him how to be a leader. We are setting out for the place of which the Eternal One has said, I will give it to you. Come with us, and we will be generous with you. For the Eternal has promised to be generous to Israel. Lo elech, I will not go, he replied to him, but will return to my native land. And Moses said, please do not leave us, inasmuch as you know where we should camp in the wilderness and can be our guide. So if you come with us, we will extend to you the same hatov, Tov means goodness. And it's used over and over in this sentence. And that's it. We don't hear anymore about Chovav. It appears he goes back home. Um, this gets into a whole other storyline about Moses' relationship with his father-in-law, which is very rich because he doesn't have a... Remember, Moses doesn't have a father. Pharaoh is, is Moses' father, as it were. Amram is his named father, but he doesn't grow up with Amram. He grows up with his mother, Yocheved, as his nurse, but he doesn't grow up with his father. Moses wasn't fathered. Moses' fathering happens when he meets Jethro after he runs away from Egypt, when he meets his future father-in-law. And so I find this line very poignant because Moses says, please do not leave us inasmuch as you know where we should camp in the wilderness and can be our guide. Didn't we just hear, about Didn't we just hear a whole section of rules that God's going to show you where to camp? What's going on with Moses? I love telling a story here that when Moses is emotionally 
overwhelmed, he forgets too. And says, you can't, do you follow what I'm saying? This is his, so I love that passage. And it makes me want to tell a whole story about Moses and his moments of doubt, you know? Um, it's also a strange passage when we think about the section with Zipporah when they're leaving and the circumcision. It's these fragment. They're fragments. These little fragment things that. You're right. You try to make sense of it. Your brain is trying to fill in the, the gaps and make That's a story right. around it. That's right. But it's mysterious. It's mysterious. You're right. It's a mysterious passage, and uh, my brain wants to make a story about it. Yeah. <laughs> It sounds as if there was much more story that didn't get included. It does, it really doesn't it? Does, yeah. But remember, Jethro, his father-in-law, met him after they left Egypt and brought Zipporah and uh, her, his, his, their sons with him. And that's in Exodus chapter 18. It's a beautiful chapter. But he didn't acknowledge either of them. He only acknowledged his father-in-law. It's true. <laughs> and his father-in-law and his family have now been with him since... Um, they reached Mount Sinai. So it appears that the father-in-law has been there for the last year and a month, and now Tsipora and his sons, and he are going on, but his father-in-law is returning. We don't know. We, she's, she's never named again. Those sons are never named again. That's right. Jethro's not named here. This That's right. Some other name. So there's right. never any yeah. assurance. And then we're going to get into the chapter, of course, where they're complaining about his wife, but it seems like a different wife. So. Right. It does. So that's why the Torah is so confounding, because it not, it's not a coherent narrative in a certain way. But our, our nature is to, we, is to, in our brains, eliminate the, uh, the inconsistencies and connect the dots, because that's the way, what we do. That's, that's, that's what we do. That's so interesting. That's Midrash. That is, that is the art of Midrash. Yeah. Right. As long as we're not attached to there being one story, and Midrash is never attached to there being one interpretation, we can have fun. Okay, good. Let's see what happens next. They marched from the mountain of the Eternal a distance of three days. And the Ark of the Covenant of the Eternal traveled in front of them on the three days journey to seek out a resting place for them. And the Eternal's cloud kept above them by day as they moved on from camp. Vayehi bin Soah Aaron vayomer Moshe Kuma Adonai v'yafutzu oivecha v'yanusu misanecha mipanecha When the ark was to set out, Moses would say, Rise up, O Eternal One. May your enemies be scattered, and may your foes flee before you. Uvnu chol yomar, Yisrael. And when it halted, he would say, Return, O Eternal One, you who are Israel's myriads of thousands. Now, when you look in the Torah, and you look here, if you look at the end of verse 34, there's an upside-down nun. Um, and then if you look at the end of 36, there's an upside-down nun. This is a mysterious scribal tradition that sets this two, two verses of the Torah apart from the rest of the sections. So let's read the note on, um, verse, chapter 30, on, on verse 35. 
A special sign, popularly referred to as an inverted nun, encloses verse 35 and 36, suggesting that they were somehow transposed. The Mishnah considers these two verses to contain the minimum number of letters, 85 letters, required to make a sacred scroll. And Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, the compiler of the Mishnah, second century, and the framer of rabbinic Judaism, took the two verses to be a separate book, thereby making numbers consist of three books and the whole Torah of seven books, thus explaining the verse in Proverbs chapter 9, which speaks of wisdom hewing out her seven pillars. Uh, variants of verse 35 can be found in these Psalms. The two sayings are included in the synagogue's traditional service. When? First, when we take the Torah out of the ark, we say, and then when we put the Torah back into the ark. So our tradition retains this in our Torah service. Uh, so it sounds to me that that idea of making the Torah into seven books was Rabbi Yehudah way of the, the book of Proverbs is a book that extols wisdom as God's consort, a feminine chokhmah. And all the wisdom in Proverbs is this feminine, divine accompanier of God. And the rabbis take the book of Proverbs and say wisdom is Torah. And the Torah is God's consort. And the Torah is God's blueprint for creating the world. And the Torah is God's template for the world we live in. So it's more than just a written Torah. It's a supernal Torah. Um, and I suspect that they wanted to harmonize the fact that there are five books of the Torah, but seven pillars of wisdom in the book of Proverbs, and wanted to show how the seven pillars and the five can coincide. But it still doesn't explain why those inverted nuns are there and why this section is set apart, but Karen knows. <laughs> I don't know, you know, I was puzzling earlier, I, was, I had written down the word for cloud, which is... Anan. Ayan, nun, nun. Ooh. <laughs> nice. So maybe these upside-down nuns are, uh, are hinting the cloud, right? at the cloud coming, yeah. going, and coming. Isn't that beautiful? Only in Woodstock would you hear that. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> I don't know, I think it's obvious, I think it's visual. Yes, it's a visual and upside down. I love it. That's my favorite one now. <laughs> That's the cloud that accompanies them when they set out and that sets down when they come back. So here's a journey. There's a journey in two verses. The cloud lifts and they go and it comes back and they say, That's great. And now they have three days out. And guess what happens? Trouble. Trouble. Oh, we got trouble. <laughs> right here in the wilderness. And that starts with J and that ends with S and that stands for Jews. Yeah. You like that? Um, Bennett is writing um, a, a, a spiel on the music man. And he's calling it the Megillah Man. And I just heard this. I just found this out. And so I had that song going in my head. That's my own lyric. 
That's so funny. We gave him a few years off, and now he's he's back. He's back. You couldn't. <laughs> the people took to complaining bitterly before in the ears of Yod Hey Vav and the Eternal heard and was incensed, and a fire of Yod Hey Vav broke out against them, ravaging the outskirts of the camp. Okay, remember the divine fire that devoured Nadav and Avihu? Mm-hmm. So this is like, when I think of it as like this contained power, it's a pillar of fire at night, and it's contained by the holiness of the community, the wholeness of the community. All the rules that were set up were so that you could create a community in which the divine presence could exist without destroying us and without abandoning us. So it's this incredibly refined, delicate balance that's being asked of us to, in my metaphorical opinion, to create a community that's holy so that the holy presence can be in it. And if you start complaining bitterly, you break the container and it bursts out and destruction ensues instead of light and warmth. That's true for relationships? That's the point. It's, you know, we're, we're, pl- we're always playing with fire. And you want, to, you want the fire to be of surface, but if it breaks out and stops providing heat and, and, and light, it then destroys. It's like any, you know, so that's, that's the fire. And that place was named, oh, the people cried out to Moses. There they are crying out again. And Moses prayed, Yitpalel, to the Eternal. And the fire, Tishka, died down. Tishka is to, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Extinguish. Extinguish, yeah. Because when the, sh- when the sun goes down, it's called Shkiat HaShemesh. Um, and that place was named Tav-Era, from Bo'er, because of Ba'ara, fire of the Eternal had broken out against them. And here's the word, suf. Okay, in Exodus they're called Erev Rav, mixed multitude. Here they're called Asafsuf, which they translate as riffraff. Among them, Asher Bikirbo. So it's not necessarily... This is not the Anjus. I mean, no, we don't know who the Asafsuf is. The people gathered together, Asaf. But he, our note says, a mixed multitude not bound by tribal ties, where it's called Erev Rav, Omnium Gatherum. <laughs> the nature of both expressions underscores the oral character of the Torah. Um, okay, um, so this is a very famous story we're starting it on here. I don't know if we'll get to the end of it, probably not today. So, the Asaf Suf, in their midst, within them, and Bikirbo means within, Hitavu Ta'ava, craved a craving. And the Israelites, oh, Vayashuvu, Vayivku, Gambani Israel. But then also the children of Israel uh, started weeping. So it is. It appears from the sentence that the Asaf Suf are not the children of Israel, because it has Gam B'nei Israel, Vayomru, and they said, "Who, who's going to give us meat? We remember the fish 
that we used to eat for free in Egypt. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. Now our gullets are shriveled. There's nothing at all, nothing but this manna to look at. This is a great set of lines. This is just great. Um, so, they, a, a gluttonous craving, or they craved a craving. One of the teachings I've heard about this is that there they were in the wilderness, and they were, all their needs were being met. All they had to do was trust. And what do you do when all your needs are met? Um, well, I, I think there's a couple of choices. You live in the present and you love and celebrate being alive. Or you start getting bored and you start thinking about what you want and what you don't have and what you... And that's where this is again an intense spiritual boot camp. Uh, so in their thoughts, as we read at the end of uh, Shlach, you know, don't go off after whatever don't go off after whatever catches you are, whatever lust is in your heart. It's like, follow the, look at the blue thread on your tzitzit, and I'm the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Let's go. So the spiritual training in my spiritual take on this story is that in order to be adult, they had to learn not to be beholden to their cravings. Right? Not to, not to start, not to spend your time fantasizing about what you're going to get or what's going to be and wishing and envying and all those other things, but instead to live in this holy community and recognize that the gifts of the present and of the connections you have with everyone are actually far superior to the, um, to the intense energies of lust, lusting and... Uh, um, uh, uh, craving. But they completely lose it. And then they turn the narrative on its head and they remember all the delicious food they got to eat for free in Egypt. That is one of the greatest lines in the Torah. Um, <laughs> now our gullets are shriveled. It says in Hebrew, Vata. Nafshenu yevesha, our soul, our life is dried up because we don't have anything but this stupid manna to eat. <laughs> now, what about that manna? Here's a little insertion. Now, the manna was like coriander seed, and in color it was like bedolach, bedelium. What's bedelium? A resinous gum. Okay. The people would go about and gather it, grind it between millstones or pound it in a mortar, boil it in a pot, and make it into cakes. And it tasted like rich cream. And when the dew fell on the camp at night, the manna would fall upon it. So they're just reminding us what that manna is. And you, many of you remember that the name manna, which in Hebrew is man, is what they name it in Exodus, because it's <coughs> on the ground, and the, it says, and the children of Israel said, said manhu, which means, what is that? And so man means, what is this? Uh, that's its name. It's like mystery meat. <laughs> Pink slime. <laughs> but it's not, it's like rich cream. 
<laughs> but it's not regular food. It's part of the boot camp, right? Um, and it's the same every day. It's the same every day, and the Midrash doesn't like that. So the Midrash says, actually, the manna tasted like whatever you liked it to taste like. But that's not what it says here. Um, it's analogous to stone soup. Everything you put in? You think of it what you want to think of it. That's right. That's a great story. And Moses heard the people weeping with their families, each at the entrance of their tent. So that's a great image, too. Everybody's in the sitting there and they're weeping, bawling like babies. Oh, no. Because <laughs> you know what's going to happen. And God was very angry, and Moses was distressed. And I think this is as far as we'll get to get today. Moses said to Yodhevave, why have you dealt so ill with your servant? And why have I not enjoyed your favor that you have laid the burden of all this people upon me? Did I conceive all this people? Did I carry them? Did I bear them? That you should say to me, carry them now in your bosom as a nurse carries an infant to the land you've promised on oath to their ancestors? Where am I going to get meat to give to all these people when they whine before me and say, give us meat to eat? I can't carry all these people by myself. It's too much for me. If you would deal thus with me, just kill me. I beg you and let me see no more of my wretchedness. Best speech in the Torah. <laughs> I never get tired of this part. Just kill me. Just kill me. Right. Yeah. Like, you have how many kids, and they're all falling apart, and it's dinner time. That's what's going on here. <laughs> I don't want to eat that. <laughs> and Moses is compared to a nursing mother, right? He says, am I their nursing mother? How am I going to do this? It's like, just kill me. And uh, God says, well, dear, why don't you just go out for a walk? And I'll... <laughs> so God responds and says, okay, gather for me 70 of Israel's elders of whom you have experience as elders and officers of the people and bring them to the tent of meeting and let them take their place there with you. And I will come down and speak with you there. And I will draw upon the spirit that is on you and put it on them. And they shall share the burden of the people with you, and you shall not bear it alone. And the last time this happened was when Jethro, speaking of fathers-in-law, when Jethro approaches Moses and says, you have a line going half around the block of people wanting to, your, to have a, a, your counsel and your judgment. You can't do this. This is bad for the people and bad for you. You'll wear yourself out. Uh, and say to the people, okay, purify yourselves for tomorrow and you shall eat meat. So he's they're gonna he's gonna have elders now to share leadership with, but now let's deal with those children. And you shall eat meat, for you have kept whining before the eternal and saying, If only we had meat to eat. <laughs> Indeed we were better off in Egypt. God will give you meat and you shall eat. 
You shall not eat one day, not two, not five, or ten, or twenty, but a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils <laughs> and becomes loathsome to you. For you have rejected God who is among you, right? They rejected God who is among them. They rejected the energy that is providing them with shelter and food and everything they need in, in place of their infantile longings and cravings. Uh, for you have rejected the eternal is among you by whining before God and saying, oh, why did we ever leave Egypt? <laughs> this whole passage is just fantastic. It's repeated in homes all around the world every day. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, okay, well, we'll... <coughs> We'll get to, uh, we'll just read on till we get to the end of this story. But Moses said, the people, Moses is still out completely. Like, <laughs> the people who are with me number 600,000 foot soldiers, and you say, I'll give them enough meat to eat for a whole month. Are there enough flocks and herds to be slaughtered to suffice them? Could all the fish of the sea be gathered? And the eternal answer to Moses, is there a limit to Yudhevave's power? You shall soon see whether what I have said happens to you or not. So still at it. <laughs> Moses went out and reported the words of the Eternal to the people. So first he gathered 70 of the people's elders and stationed them around the tent. And then after coming down in a cloud and speaking to him, the Eternal drew upon the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And when the spirit rested upon them, they prophesied. And the loyasafu, and then they stopped. Oh, loyasafu is not clear. It means did not stop or did they did not stop. It either means did not continue or did not stop. It's not clear. Mm -hmm. I would say did not stop would be what the logical thing would be here. Two men, one named Eldad and the other Medad, had remained in camp. And yet the spirit rested upon them. They were among those recorded. But they had not gone out to the tent. And they prophesied in the camp. And a youth ran out, ran out and told Moses, saying, Eldad and Medad are acting the prophet in the camp. And Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' attendant from his youth, spoke up and said, My Lord, Moses, restrain them. But Moses said to him, it looks like Moses has gotten his uh, cool back again. Are you wrought up on my account? Would that all the Eternal's people were prophets. And the Eternal put the divine spirit upon all of them. So it's so interesting. Moses has left his, like, uh, just a few sentences ago, Moses is like, God, you, you know, kill me. And now what are we going to do? And what do you think, Gail? I think he's, I, I read it this time differently. I read it as, yes. Oh, you're right. More of them oh, sound you're like right. This. You're right. He's still, he's still in that so. space. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Everybody, I, I can't do this by myself. It's like, seven days isn't enough. I mean, please. Everybody. You're right. I love it. I love it. And Moses then re-entered. But that line taken out of context yes. is Moses saying, "Would you know? There's there's no intermediary. I don't want there to be me to be the intermediary. Let everyone have the divine spirit rest on them." And then a wind from the eternal started up, swept quail from the sea, and strewed them over the camp about a day's journey on this side and about a day's journey on that side all around the camp 
and two cubits deep on the ground. That's like a yard deep. And the people set to gathering quail all that day. And can you picture? Manna, it's quail. And they go nuts, right? And every, even the one who gathered at least had 10 homers, and they spread them out all around the camp. And the meat was still between their teeth and not yet chewed when the anger of the eternal blazed forth. There's that, again, that image of um, the fire that is uncontained when the people can't contain themselves. Uh, that's a good way of describing it. Because to, to be a free people, you have to contain yourself. You can't just live in chaos. Through the, live by the chaos of your impulses. Uh, but it blazed forth, and the Eternal struck the people with a severe plague, like food poisoning. <laughs> and that place was called Kivrot Hata'ava. The, and their reason is, Kisham Kavru Ata'am Hamit Avim, because there the people who had the craving were buried, or because there the cravings of the people were buried. Right? There's two ways to translate that line. So in this symbolic journey, you have to find a way to, okay, they, they did it, they had their fling, and then they were like ugh, ruined, and they say, well, we're, okay, we get it, we're not going to do that again until the next time, when, they, when we forget. Right? They learned their lesson. But the place is called, the burial place, Kivrota Ta'ava means, the burial place of craving. So it's not the meat that was the issue, it was the craving that's the issue. And then the people set out from Kivrot Hata'ava, so they left that place and went to the next place, Hatserot. Hatserot means um, a Hatser is an enclosure for sheep. Um, I guess we have to stop there, but we got through a whole story isn't that, isn't that a great portion? So, yes, Gail. Yeah. I, I never really tracked before, I don't remember tracking, that Miriam and Aaron speak about how can God only speaks through Moses right after right. The, yeah, the two prophets. Not only the elders, oh, but the two right, prophets. Right, in the next says, chapter. All to be prophets. Would and the, that's when they, yeah, I never, I never noticed that conjunction. Thank you. So just... Gail's pointing out that in the next chapter, Miriam and Aaron complain against Moses, saying, why should God only speak through Moses? God, doesn't God speak through us? But that's just what happened. So, oh, thank you. We'll have to explore that in the future, because I never made that connection before. Thank you. It's a much more cohesive chapter than, mm -hmm. than it looked. I never made that connection. I, uh, I wonder what's going on. Okay, I'm sorry we don't have more time right now, but I'm going to read it later and let's keep thinking about it. Put a post it there and then we'll start there next time. <laughs> next year. Well, okay, next year. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, because 